you have a Bible, you can turn to the book of 2 Timothy. And uh, for the next couple of weeks, we're going to be in, in 2 Timothy chapter 3. The title of this sermon is How to Make America Great Again. How to Make America Great Again. As you know, and if you have a pulse, and if you're breathing, if you're alive, Donald Trump is um, trying to earn the Republican nomination for the next president of the United States. And it looks like he's going to get it. And Trump's slogan, his campaign slogan is what? Make America Great Again. That's a great slogan. He got that from Ronald Reagan. Make America Great Again. But from what I've heard so far, and this is not a knock on Donald Trump, but from what I've heard so far, I'm not sure that he understands what it takes for America to be great and the requirements for greatness. I'm not sure that he understands the roots, the causes of America's greatness. In fact, when I talk to most Americans, I'm not sure that, that, that most Americans understand any more the requirements for greatness, what it takes for us to be a great nation, because uh, most Americans have lost sight of theology and of history. And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Uh, it actually does come up in the text. And so uh, we're going to talk about how to make America great again this morning. Second Timothy chapter 3, picking up in verse 1. Um, before we get into that, just to give you a little bit of context, the Apostle Paul We've been studying first, uh, 2 Timothy since chapter 1, so just to review, this is written by the Apostle Paul. It's not written by Timothy, it's written to Timothy, who was a pastor of a church in the city of Ephesus, which is modern-day Turkey. And Timothy was the pastor. Paul was writing, he wrote the books of First and Second Timothy, or the letters of First and Second Timothy, to, to help Timothy to become a better pastor. So those letters are very instructive for churches, for Christians, for pastors, for church leaders. And during the time that this was written, it was a very difficult time to be alive. Very, very difficult time, especially for Christians. Nero was the emperor of Rome, and Nero hated Christians. He was hunting down Christians, killing Christians, uh, putting them into the Colosseum so that they could be eaten alive by wild animals for entertainment purposes. It was a horrible time to be a Christian. In fact, Paul wrote this from the Mamertine dungeon in the city of Rome, which can still be toured to this day. And this was Paul's very last letter. That's why we've called this series, this study through 2 Timothy, last letter. This was Paul's last letter. He wrote 13 letters in the New Testament. That's, there are 27 books in the New Testament. Paul wrote 13 of them. It shows you how important Paul is for our theology. This is his last letter. A couple of months after he wrote this letter, Paul was executed. He was beheaded because of his faith in Jesus. Back then in the Roman Empire, they didn't have religious freedom like we do today in the United States of America. And so that's the context. Very difficult time. Paul writes this in verse 1 to Timothy. He says, but know this, difficult times will come in the last days. Difficult times will come in the last days. And let's just stop there for a moment. First of all, what does Paul mean by the last days? Well, Paul, this is what you need to know. The last days are now. We are living in the last days. In fact, Paul and Timothy were living in the last days 2,000 years ago. The word or the phrase, the last days, in the New Testament refers to the time period between the first and second comings of Jesus, Jesus Christ. The first coming whenever he came as a baby, his incarnation, and his second coming whenever he will consummate his kingdom, when he'll come back. That's the last days. I'll show you that in just a second. Acts 2.17, for example. This is on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came, and Peter stood up, and he quoted from the Old Testament prophet Joel. He said this, and it will be in the, what? And it will be in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my Spirit on all humanity. 
Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy, your young men will see visions, and your old men will dream dreams. Peter was quoting from Joel, an Old Testament prophet. Joel's prophecy concerned something that the Holy Spirit would do in the last days, which happened 2,000 years ago on the day of Pentecost. Paul and Timothy, the early church, they were living in the last days as we are today. Hebrews 1, 2. It says, in these what? In these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. And then 1 John 2.18. The Apostle John, he wrote this. Children, it is the what? The last hour. That was 2,000 years ago when he wrote that. It is the last hour. And as you have heard, Antichrist is coming. Even now, many Antichrists have come. We know from this that it is the last hour. The last days or the last hour doesn't refer to the final few days or the final few months before Jesus actually comes back. It refers to the time period between the first and second comings of Jesus. We are in the last chapter of history, of human history, between the first and second coming of Jesus. So Paul and Timothy were living in the last days. We are living in the last days. And Paul says, what about the last days? He says, what's going to happen in the last days? What does he say in verse 1? He says, difficult times will come in the last days. What does he mean by that? He's talking about... There will be difficult periods of time in the last days. Difficult periods of time. Or there will be terrible times, as the NIV says. The NIV says there will be terrible times in the last days. Now, this doesn't mean that the entire time period between the first and second comings of Christ are going to be difficult and terrible everywhere in the world. This means there will be difficult periods of time peppered throughout history between the first and second comings of Jesus. Difficult periods of time in different parts of the world, not necessarily the whole world and every city and every town and every country. Difficult periods of time throughout the world until Jesus comes back. Difficult periods of time where it will be very, very difficult to be alive, very difficult to be a Christian, very difficult to keep your family safe. Times when it would be hard to, make, to earn a living. Times when it would be hard to, to raise godly kids. Difficult periods of time in the last days. And if we, by the way, if we look back at just what has happened in the 20th century, this past century, we can see that Paul's writings were true, came true. In the 20th century alone, we had two world wars, atomic bombs, genocide, the Holocaust, an estimated 187 million people died because of wars in the 20th century alone. So we've seen difficult periods of time throughout history since Jesus first came. And we will continue to see that. But what I want you to notice is what causes these difficult periods of time. What causes these difficult periods of time? Look at verse 2. Paul says, For people will be Lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, without love for what is good, traitors, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. What is this? Paul is giving us a vice list, a list of vices. A vice is just an evil or a wicked behavior. Now you find vice lists scattered throughout the New Testament. Even Jesus gave vice lists, just a list of vices. It's not comprehensive of all the sins that are in existence. It's not uh, exhaustive, an exhaustive list. It's just a list of vices. Paul is saying that in the last days, which we're in, there will be difficult periods of time. And what causes these difficult periods of time? 
an increase in sin. An increase in sin, as people become more evil, it leads to difficult periods of time. It leads to difficulty. Then Paul goes on in verse 5. He talks about these people and how people are going to become more sinful. He says that these people holding to the form of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid these people. What's he talking about there? In other words, there will be people that, that have the form of godliness or the appearance of godliness. They talk the Christian talk, but they don't have the indwelling Holy Spirit that you get when you actually get saved, the power that gives you the power to become godly in your character. Lots of people walking around saying, yeah, I believe in Jesus. Yeah, I'm a Christian. But they do not have, do not possess Jesus in their lives who's actually changing them and making them godly in their character. Avoid these people. Specifically, by the way, that's talking about people in the church who profess to be Christians but aren't acting like Christians. This is a reference to church discipline. Now, when it comes to non-believers, people who don't claim to be Christians and who aren't living like Christians, we're called to love them and try to reach them. And then in verse 6, he's going to talk about some other evil people that are going to increase in the last days. He says, for among them, and now he's going to talk about false teachers. Among them are those who worm their way into households and capture idle women burdened down with sins, led along by a variety of passions, always learning, never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres resisted Moses, so these also resist the truth. Men who are corrupt in mind, worthless in regard to the faith, but they will not make further progress for their lack of understanding will be clear to all as theirs was also. In other words, there will be false teachers who come along, but eventually it will be made clear to all that they are false teachers. Who are Janus and Jambres? He says that they're, the false teachers are like Janus and Jambres. Janus and Jambres, these people, these names are actually not found in the Old, in the Old Testament. They actually come from Jewish tradition. According to Jewish tradition, Janus and Jambres were the Egyptian sorcerers and magicians who resisted Moses whenever Moses was trying to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. Remember there were some Egyptian sorcerers and and, uh, magicians? That's who these people were. So according to tradition, Janus and Jambres actually converted to Judaism and left Egypt with the Jews whenever the Jews exited Egypt. And then you remember when Moses went up on the mountain, was praying, and then what were the Israelites doing? What did they do? They, they crafted a golden calf. Well, apparently, according to tradition, the Jews believed that Janus and Jambres were the ones who incited the Jews to craft this golden calf and worship it. And then when Moses came back down, Janus and Jambres were killed along with all the other idolaters. So Paul is just making a reference to them and saying that Just as Janus and Jambres resisted Moses, these false teachers will rise up and resist preachers of the truth and Christians who believe and and live according to the truth. And then verse 10, Paul says some encouraging things to Timothy. He says, But you have followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, and endurance, along with the persecutions and sufferings that came to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. What persecutions I endured. Yet the Lord rescued me from them all. In fact, all those who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Evil people and imposters will become worse, deceiving and being deceived. So Paul says two important things here. He says, first of all, 
that everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So if you're a Christian trying to live the Christian life faithfully, you will be persecuted. Now, this persecution will vary in degrees according to where you live and what period of time you live in. It depends on the culture in which you live. For example, the culture surrounding you, if it, is, if it reflects Christian values, if the majority of the people in society live according to Judeo-Christian values, biblical values, even though they may not be professing Christians, well then, you're not going to face as much persecution. But if you're a Christian living in a society where more and more people are drifting away, their values, their culture is drifting away from the Bible, then as a Christian you're going to face more persecution. A lot of times in America we're thinking, man, the Bible says we're supposed to be facing persecution. I'm not being persecuted. We live in a very unique period of time in America where our culture has been heavily influenced by Judeo-Christian values since the first settlers came to America, since the pilgrims and the Puritans came. So we've been very, very blessed. But now as of late, over the past 50 to 100 years, more and more our culture, the values of our culture have been drifting away from Judeo-Christian values. And so Christians more and more are starting to feel a little persecution. And then Paul says in verse 13, he says, evil people and imposters will become worse deceiving and being deceived. So Paul says that as we get closer and closer to the return of Christ, evil people will get worse, false teachers will get worse and worse. Let me put all this together. Paul says in the last days, which we're in, difficult periods of time will come. Terrible times will come. And what causes these times of difficulty? Again, he says in verse 2, sin. An increase in sin, an increase in sin leads to difficult times. You could put it like this. As sin increases, society breaks down. As sin increases, society breaks down. Increasing sin leads to increasing suffering. The decline of morals leads to the downfall of a nation. Paul says in the last days, there will be Difficult times, periods of difficulty. What causes it? An increase in sin. As sin increases in a society, it leads to difficult times. It leads to the breakdown, the decay of society. Now, on the surface, somebody may push back at that and say, come on now, you're a preacher, you're supposed to say that, but does an increase in sin really cause society to break down? Well, just think about it. This is so self-evident. This is so common sense. An increase in sin causes an individual to break down. Moral decay causes an individual to break down. Think about a person. As a person becomes more morally corrupt, more sinful, more selfish, more lazy, more irresponsible, more rude, more crude, more dishonest, that person's life begins to crumble and fall apart. Think about a marriage. Moral decay leads to the downfall of a marriage. It's just one person in a marriage. That's all it takes. One person becomes morally corrupt and begins to become more selfish and rude and, and dishonest and irresponsible and lazy and inconsiderate and selfish. The marriage falls apart. The marriage crumbles. Moral decay leads to the downfall of a family. As a society becomes more and more evil. It becomes harder and harder to raise godly kids. Parents in this room, you know what I'm talking about. 
As society becomes more and more evil, it becomes harder and harder to raise godly kids. Listen, no longer can you just give your kid the TV remote and walk out of the room. It's too evil. Who knows what they're going to see on TV? No longer can, well, never could you sit your child down in front of the computer and say, go ahead, you can surf the Internet. I'll see you later. You can't do that. There's too much evil. You have to be careful about taking a trip to the mall these days with your kids. No telling what they're going to be exposed to that you don't want them to see yet. In my neighborhood, we have to tell our kids you can't go past the stop sign. Why? Our society is so evil. Just this past week, there was a guy who tried to abduct a child in Sugar Mill Pond. I mean, you have to keep, the, the more evil a society is, the more you have to keep your kids closer and closer. This is why the number one or the fastest growing form of education in America today is homeschooling. Homeschooling is growing faster than private school and public school. Because as a society becomes more and more evil, parents more and more have to keep their kids closer and closer because of what their kids can be exposed to out there. As, as a society becomes more and more evil, it begins to break down, it begins to crumble, it becomes harder and harder to raise a family. Now, I want to illustrate this with some social science, just a couple of ways that as sin increases, society breaks down. First of all, moral decay causes chaos in the community. Moral decay causes chaos in the community. What is the leading cause of poverty in America? Now, the leading cause of poverty in different countries is different. But I'm asking you, what's the leading cause of poverty, which is a social ill, a social sickness? What's the leading cause of poverty in America? Well, some people might say the leading cause of poverty in America is racial injustice, racial inequality. Well, unfortunately, you can't say that anymore because racism is illegal in our country. It's illegal for an institution, for a business, for a company, for the government to have any kind of, to show any kind of racism or have racism in its policies and procedures and rules and guidelines. That's illegal. Not only that, but the President of the United States is black. We have a Supreme Court Justice who's black. Some of the most powerful, most influential, uh, most wealthy people in our country are black. Today, Regardless of the color of your skin, if you work hard, if you're responsible, if you handle your business, you can become pretty much anything you want to in our country. Amen? It's a wonderful, wonderful place to live, thanks to, to, to people like Martin Luther King Jr. So it's not racism. That's not the cause of poverty. Some people would say that maybe the cause of poverty in America is a lack of education. Well, you can't say that because education is free. You don't have to be rich to get an education. Isn't that wonderful in America? It's absolutely free. In fact, it's against the law to not send your kid to school. In the state of Louisiana, the government spends about $12,000 a year in public ed education for each child. Now, I homeschool. We spend about $160 a year per child. Uh, it's, it's not a cause of a lack of education. Let me cut to the chase. What is the leading cause of poverty in America? It's sin. It's sin. I'll tell you two sins. The first one is the sin of sexual immorality. Having sex outside of marriage leads to having children outside of wedlock. Look at the social science. 80% of all long-term child poverty occurs in single-parent homes. 80%. Over a third of single-parent families with children are poor, compared to only 7% of married families. 
Overall, children in married families are 82% less likely to be poor than our children of single parents. So most poverty in America is caused by people having sex outside of marriage. Another cause of poverty in America is laziness. It's laziness. According to the U.S. Census Bureau in 2013, they found that of all the people living in poverty in America, 16 years old and older, people who are able to work, of all the people in America who are living below the poverty line, only 9% were working full-time. Only 9%. These aren't people who are working tirelessly and are poor because their jobs aren't paying them enough. These are people who are poor because they're not working enough. Listen, if you don't work, what does the Bible say? You don't eat. What would happen to your income if you stopped working? It would go down, wouldn't it? That's what happens when you don't work. One of the leading causes of poverty in America is simply people not working, laziness. Listen, we could almost eradicate poverty completely in America if people would stop having sex outside of wedlock and if people would go to work and work hard, like you. So sin causes chaos in the community. Virtue is moral excellence. I don't know if you're familiar with that term. Virtue simply means moral excellence. Virtue is like oil in an engine. Virtue is like oil in an engine. In an engine, an engine has lots of steel parts, metal parts that are rubbing up against each other. And if there's no oil in that engine, then those engine parts are going to continue to rub, each other, rub against each other. There's going to be lots of heat, lots of friction, lots of conflict. And eventually those engine parts will destroy each other. The engine will break apart. Oil is what allows those engine parts to continue to rub, each, rub against each other in close proximity at a high speed without the engine overheating, burning up, and, and breaking apart. Well, virtue is like that in a community. Virtue is like oil in a community. When there's virtue in the community, it allows the people in the community to rub shoulders, to live closely together, to be neighbors, to be co-workers, to be fellow citizens, to shop together at the mall and at the supermarket, and to send your kids to school with each other. And with a high level of virtue in society, people can get along. There's peace and there's tranquility. But as virtue begins to decline, as morality begins to decline in a society, it becomes more and more conflict, more and more corruption, more and more chaos, and a society begins to self-destruct. So moral decay causes chaos in the community. Let me show you one more thing. Moral decay causes corruption in the government. This is how an increase in sin causes society to break down. Moral decay causes corruption in the government. I know several people who have told me that everybody in government, every politician is corrupt. Ever heard anybody say that before? Every politician is corrupt. Well, I disagree with that because that's like saying every teacher is corrupt. Where do you get that from? I, you know, I'm sure there are some corrupt teachers, school teachers, but not all of them. That's like saying every lawyer is corrupt. Now, we can joke about that, but I feel sorry for the lawyers, the good lawyers out there. And so you can't say there are a lot of very godly politicians Men that, and women that have sacrificed their careers, sacrificed their, their reputations, have put so much on the line to, to be statesmen for their country, for their city, for their community. But why have politicians developed such a bad reputation in America? 
Well, it's because there have been enough politicians who have gotten caught with their hand in the cookie jar. And so when enough of that happens, eventually it ruins the reputation of all the politicians. And that's why so many people say all politicians are corrupt. Now, we know all about corruption in politics in Louisiana. In 2010, former Governor Edwin Edwards was convicted of 17 counts of racketeering, extortion, fraud, and conspiracy, was sentenced to 10 years in prison. Show a picture of Edwin Edwards just in case they forgot. What about in 2014? Remember the mayor of New Orleans who saved the city from Katrina? Mayor Ray Nagin of New Orleans was convicted of 20 counts of bribery, fraud, and money laundering and was sentenced to 10 years in prison. We know all about corruption in government in Louisiana. What causes corruption in government? Where do our politicians come from? They come from the general population. They come from our churches. They come from our schools. They come from our communities. We elect them. As sin increases in a community, as more and more of the general population is sinful, the chances of us electing a corrupt politician greatly increase. And that's what has happened. We didn't intentionally go out there and set out to elect some corrupt politicians. It's just as sin increases in society, it's harder and harder to find men and women of character, of virtue. And those become our political leaders. Not only that, but as the general population in a society becomes more and more sinful, then these people go to the polls and they vote. What kind of values are they voting for? What kind of policies are they voting for? What kind of politicians are they voting for? People vote their values. As sin increases in the general population, it leads to corrupt government, unjust laws. We've seen that over the past few decades. We have now abortion on demand, no-fault divorce, affirmative action. We have same-sex marriage. We have welfare laws that discourage work, penalize marriage. As sin increases, society breaks down. Paul says, in the last days, difficult times will come. There will be periods of difficulty caused by an increase in sin. And that's what we've seen here in America. In other words, you could say this. You could write this down. A flourishing society demands a high level of virtue. A flourishing society demands a high level of virtue. What does that word virtue mean again? Moral excellence. A flourishing society demands a high level of virtue or moral excellence. If sin is what causes society to break down, if it's what causes chaos in the community, if it's what causes corruption in the government, then for society to flourish and to prosper, it requires a high level of virtue. Now, this is not a new idea. This idea was held by the founding fathers of our country. Let me quote from Benjamin Franklin. Benjamin Franklin was the only founding father to sign both the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. He said, only a virtuous people are capable of freedom. James Madison, the author of the Constitution, said, to suppose that any form of government will secure liberty or happiness without any virtue in the people is a chimerical idea. In other words, it's crazy. Crazy. George Washington, our first president, said, virtue or morality is a necessary spring of popular government. I'm not making this stuff up. These guys were reading the same Bible that we are, and they believed it. They knew it. They were looking back at history. An increase of sin causes society to break down. A flourishing society demands a high level of virtue. 
So if a flourishing society demands a high level of virtue, then how do we cultivate virtue in society? How do we make sure that, that, that Americans, that people in Acadiana are people of virtue so that our society will flourish? Well, that, that's the question, isn't it? The answer is the Christian church. The church. The church. A high level of virtue in society requires a thriving Christian church. The church, supported by the family, is the primary institution in society that cultivates virtue. The church is what teaches virtue. The church is what motivates and encourages people to be virtuous. The church is where people learn the Ten Commandments. It's where people learn the Sermon on the Mount, the ethics of Jesus. It's where people learn the fruit of the Spirit. It's where people are taught personal responsibility, the value of hard work. Love your neighbor as yourself. Be merciful, compassionate, and generous. Take care of your family. The church is where people are are taught what, what marriage is and what family is and how to raise their kids according to God's will. The church is what teaches people to be virtuous and then encourages them to go and to to do likewise. Again, this is not a new idea. This is a a long-forgotten idea. This is not a popular idea. This is a controversial idea. This is an ignored idea, but this is not new. This is what our founding fathers, the founding fathers, the people who built this country, this is what they believed deeply. In fact, even before our founding fathers, there were some great political thinkers that greatly influenced the founding fathers like John Locke who believed this, who knew this. To quote George Washington again, our first president, he said, of all the dispositions, of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. In vain would that man claim claim tribute to patriotism who should labor to subvert these great pillars of human happiness. Now, let's break down what he said real quick. He said, of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, of all the things that that lead to a flourishing society, religion and morality are indispensable. And then at the end there, he says, in vain would that man claim tribute to patriotism. In other words, how can nobody should call themselves a patriot, a person who loves their country, if they work against religion and morality in society. And then he says that religion and morality are the great pillars of human happiness. That's our first president. Washington went on to say this. He said, Reason and experience both forbid us to expect that national morality can prevail in exclusion of religious principle." Washington understood that our our society had to be virtuous in order to flourish, but he also understood what what supports, what cultivates virtue, religion. And he was talking about the Christian religion. Another founding father, Governor Morris, that was his first name, by the way, Governor Morris, he wrote this, religion is the only solid basis of good morals. Alexis de Tocqueville, Alexis de Tocqueville, let let me tell you about Alexis de Tocqueville is very, very important for American history. Alexis de Tocqueville was a French political scientist and historian who came to America in the 1830s, not long after our country was founded. He came to America to study America's greatness, to figure out what is the source, why is America so great? Tocqueville traveled all around. He interviewed people. I mean, he stayed here for years. 
and he wrote a famous book called Democracy in America. Tocqueville found, and he, he concluded, that the source of America's greatness was not its natural resources. It wasn't its geography, its place in the, in the geography of the world, its placement. Look what he wrote. He said, not until I went into the churches of America and heard her pulpits flame with righteousness did I understand the secret of her genius and power. Now notice this next sentence and then ask yourself, has Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton ever read this? He said, America is great because she is what? Good, virtuous. And if America ever ceases to be good, America will cease to be great. Even Thomas Jefferson, the author of the Declaration of Independence, our third president, Thomas Jefferson knew the importance of religion because it supported, it was the foundation for virtue, which was necessary for a flourishing society. One day, Thomas Jefferson was on his way to church. And a friend passed him along the way, and a friend said, where are you going? He said, I'm going to church. And his friend said, you don't believe any of that stuff. Notice what Thomas Jefferson said in reply. Thomas Jefferson said, Sir, no nation has ever yet existed or been governed without religion, nor can be. The Christian religion is the best religion that has ever been given to man. And I, as chief magistrate, as the president of this nation, am bound to give it the sanction of my good example. Now, please don't misunderstand. The founding fathers did not advocate a theocracy. They founded a a country that was based on religious freedom for all, even for atheists, even for unbelievers, even for people of different religions. But the founding fathers understood that a flourishing society demands a high level of virtue, and they believed down to the core of their being that a high level of virtue requires a thriving church. A high level of virtue in society requires a thriving church. They didn't advocate a theocracy, but they didn't mind using the power of the, of the secular government to promote the flourishing, the thriving of the church. In fact, that's why still today there are tax incentives for churches. We're tax-free. We're a nonprofit organization because government traditionally wants to support and encourage the local church, to thrive because they know how important it is. So, by the way, this is backed up by modern research that a thriving church is what cultivates virtue in society. Dr. Patrick Fagan, I want you to read this with me. Dr. Patrick Fagan at the Heritage Foundation, he sums up the social research and the social science about how the church is what cultivates, religion is what cultivates virtue. He writes this, regular attendance at religious services. Now, this is not people who believe in Jesus. This is people, he's talking about people who are actively involved in church, people who are going to church, participating in church. He says, regular attendance at religious services is linked to healthy, stable family life, strong marriages, and well-behaved children. The practice of religion also leads to a reduction in the incidence of domestic abuse, crime, substance abuse, and addiction. In addition, Religious practice leads to an increase in physical and mental health, longevity, and education attainment. He's summing up the social science research today. So how do we make America great again? Why don't you write a letter? America needs a thriving church so that it can cultivate a high level of virtue in society. 
Now, I'm not sure that, that Donald Trump understands this or that Hillary Clinton understands this, but this is the truth. This is what the Bible teaches us, and we know that the Bible is true. This is what the founding fathers believed. This is what the social research points to. So with this in mind, real quick, let me suggest four actions you can take to make America great again. Four actions you personally can take to make America great again. Number one, act like a Christian. Act like a Christian. In other words, practice the morals and the virtues of Jesus, of the, of the Bible, of the Christian life. Act like a Christian. Love your neighbor as yourself. Follow the Ten Commandments. Build a strong marriage. Raise godly kids. Do your best to, to try anyway. Act like a Christian. Jesus said that as Christians, we are the salt of the earth. What does salt do? It cleanses and it prevents decay. When we act as the salt, when we live godly, holy Christian lives, we're preventing the moral decay of our society. We, you are doing a great service to your country simply by acting like a Christian. Number two, the second thing to do, second action to make America great again is to support the church. Support the church. If America needs a thriving church in order to, to, to cultivate the necessary virtue in society, then that should motivate you to support the church. Now listen, already as a Christian, you're supposed to participate in church and be a part of the church and volunteer and bring your tithes and offerings. But this should add special motivation and encouragement to you. Now that you see the important civil role that the church plays, you should want to come to church and be a part of it and help to make the church stronger so the church can play out its indispensable role of making our nation great. Support the church. Third, participate in civics. Participate in civics. Stay informed with what's happening at City Hall and at the state capitol and at Washington. Stay informed. Vote. Boycott. Petition. Contact your representatives. Remember that as our general population becomes more and more sinful, these people go to the voting booth and they don't vote for righteousness. Our politicians and then our laws become more and more corrupt. As Christians, we've got to represent. We've got to go to the polls, the voting booth. We've got to vote biblical values. Lydia said it well this week when we were talking. Lydia said, if the righteous do not vote, then there will be no vote for righteousness. If the righteous do not vote, then there will be no vote for righteousness. Number four, fight for religious freedom. Fight for religious freedom. According to the founding fathers, Religious freedom is the first freedom, the most important freedom. It's the first freedom mentioned in the Bill of Rights of the Constitution. Freedom of religion. Not freedom from religion. Freedom of religion. Freedom of religious exercise. For Christians to live virtuous lives and prevent moral decay, they must have the freedom to live virtuous lives, to live out their morals. For the Christian church to thrive, it must have the freedom to preach righteousness, to preach against sin, to encourage its people to go out there and live virtuous lives. Fight for religious freedom. Don't ever vote for a policy or a politician who would elevate sexual freedom over religious freedom or who would discriminate against people because of their religious and moral beliefs. In 2014, the fire chief of Atlanta, Kelvin Cochran, a great man of God, 
he was a member of a Baptist church in Atlanta, a Sunday school teacher, and he wrote a book about biblical manhood, and in it, it talked about biblical sexual ethics. And in the book, he said homosexuality is a sin, along with adultery, along with sex outside of marriage. Well, the mayor of Atlanta and the city council got a hold of his book, and they read it. And they said, you know what? The fire chief doesn't represent the new values of the city of Atlanta. And so they fired him. They fired him because of he's, he's a man of virtue, a man of character. Wouldn't you like to work for a man like that, by the way? Wouldn't you like that to be your boss? Not the, not the city leaders, not the elected politicians in Atlanta. Let me tell you something. Atlanta is full of Christians like you and me who didn't go out and vote. Or they went out and voted for the mayor and the city council without thinking, without in, informing themselves about who these people actually are. We've got to be informed. We've got to make sure as Christians that we do our part. Listen, the reason why we need to take part in civics is to love our neighbor, to love our neighbor. Get a little fired up here, sorry. I'm not fussing at you. So let me sum this up. How do we make America great again? America needs a thriving Christian church so that it can cultivate a high level of virtue in society. I don't know who the next president is going to be. I'll tell you who I will publicly endorse right now. I'm just kidding. Um, but let's pray that whoever the next president is will not only want to make America great, but will understand the requirements of greatness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this country. God, we live in one of the most prosperous and one of the most free nations in the history of the world, the history of the world. We are so blessed, and we take it for granted by not staying informed, not voting, not speaking up. Forgive us, Lord, for surrendering our country to secularists. God, help us to take our country back for Jesus. Help us to take our country back for righteousness. Help us to preserve freedom for the next generation, for our children and our grandchildren. Lord, we pray for our revival in our country. We pray that the American church would rise up once again and would take its part as the salt and light in society. Lord, we pray for you to do to, to, to help us find the next president of the United States, that it would be your pick, your first pick, that it would be a man of righteousness. And pray this in Jesus' name.